ETL stands for Extract Transform Load and refers to the process of integrating data from many different sources into one location, usually a data warehouse. This process has become especially important for companies as they use many different services to collect and manage data. The company Grouperu provides an open-source framework that helps you move data between your data warehouse and all of your cloud-based tools. This process of moving data back from the data warehouse to the applications is called reverse ETL, and it's important for things like marketing campaigns and customer service. Grouperu can easily integrate with your developer's tools and is free and easy to install. In this episode, we talk with Brian Leonard, CEO at Grouperu. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Good to have you. We're talking today about ETL or modern ETL. I feel like ETL is no longer the right way to talk about it. You have ETL, you have reverse ETL. Really what we're talking about is data transfer, right? Just high velocity data transfer. Yeah, and there's a pretty strong case that the best way to do ETL is actually ELT, by the way. So just to further confuse the, the issue. And, and so overall, I think what we're talking about here is data pipelines and the best way to collect and then make use of, of your data and your business. The companies I've talked to in the past that are in this area, Airbyte, that is open source forward and reverse ETL, High Touch, that is closed source reverse ETL. You have Fivetran, which is forward ETL. And you have, what's the other one? Census, which is also closed source reverse ETL. All of these companies seem to be doing super well. What else is there? What else is there? I've talked with Airbyte. I'm not, I'm not sure they're focused. I think they're mostly the Fivetran forward ETL. I like, I like that we've... Uh, retroactively added a new thing to theirs, uh, which is great, too, with the reverse and the forward. Uh, super good. I thought they were forward and reverse. Yeah, let's, we can... Uh, I'm searching, I'm searching. Open source data integration pipelines for modern teams, modern data teams. Yes. Get your data pipelines running in minutes with pre-built or custom connectors from the Airbyte UI API or CLI. Sounds like forward and reverse to me. Extract from sources, load to destinations, and transform. There you go. So they're going... Their destinations, among the other issues that we have in this uh, lexicon, is what a source and a destination means. For Airbyte, a source is MailChimp, let's say, Salesforce, something like that. And a destination is Snowflake, something like that. For us, it's the, well, the reverse. Anyway, back to your, back to your question around the other things that are that are missing from that that equation. I think the the transform layer. So if Airbyte is doing the extracting and loading into BigQuery, Snowflake, uh, what's doing the the transformations? You know, in the open source world, some proprietary stuff, but uh, mostly open source is the DBT. That's a big part of that equation. How can we run a sequence of SQL statements to transform that that data, combining the various different tables uh, very often into like a customer roll-up table, for example, or the kind of things that you would then use in, in analytics, BI. So there's the BI picture to that modern data stack too. What are we using to introspect the warehouse and you know tools like Tableau and Looker and Preset and Metabase are in that category. 
And then, you know, in the reverse ETL space with uh, us and census and, and high touch, it's about how are we going to make use of that data? How are we going to teach it about our data model and put that combined data or any given insights that we've made back into the tools that we're using? So how can we update Snowflake with what people are doing in our product so that we can better help our sales team reach out to the right people, for example? Okay, you were CTO of TaskRabbit for 10 years. That's a little bit of context for your technical savvy. Tell me about the ETL problems at, or ETL, or maybe I should say more broadly, data engineering problems that you experienced at TaskRabbit. By the way, TaskRabbit, phenomenal product. I actually think I'm going to use it today. Oh, there you go. Well, you know, I'm sure uh, no longer there, but wholeheartedly believe it's still just at the beginning of its of its journey. Still a, still a great product. Pretty good post-acquisition. Still, arguably still a good competitor to Thumbtack or whatever the market leader is, or maybe they're the market leader. I don't know. It's kind of like a pretty wide open design space. Who's the market leader in that space? Is it still TaskRabbit? I mean, you know, any space can be subdivided up. The, the leader in getting things done in your house or just people doing it themselves by far. I don't know. Whatever it is, like, so, like, I need a house cleaner today. I'll tell you, like, no offense to Handy. The market leader is not Handy. Sorry. Fair enough. So TaskRabbit on getting it done today, to my knowledge, is, uh, is probably the, still the market leader. The putting it out for bid and roofers and things like that, probably more in the thumbtack. And I've noticed Angie making some some moves in this. Uh, they rebranded and are kind of going in that direction. So I'd be curious where they are right now. Anyway, back to the data at TaskRabbit. I think it goes through a, we went through a pretty common journey. You know, I built that, you know, app uh, on, uh, on my SQL. Uh, I probably picked Postgres today built that up on MySQL. We had the data in MySQL. It had people's user accounts and tasks and, and what they've been up to. At some point, we needed to combine data into that. And we started, we created a, you know, a ETL process. So we were pulling in things from Zendesk, for example. We were updating our, we copied over our pro uh, product tables into Redshift then we transform those a little bit. Maybe there's a transform that, you know, does some sort of uh, roll up or even some prediction of, uh, you know, when they're going to book another task or, you know, gives them a score or something like that, those kinds of transformations. And then we put Looker on top of that. We were one of the early Looker users held out with that pricing for quite a while, uh, much to their chagrin, possibly. Yeah. Either way. Uh, <laughs> some hard negotiations there. Whatever, so they can afford it. They can yeah, they're doing it. fine. They're doing fine. And so we uh, spun everybody up on, on Looker in general, tried to go more towards the self-serve to add more value to the, the data team. I was in charge of the, the data team through most of, this, most of this story. At some point, we weren't getting our data needs fully met by Redshift, we switched at that point. Uh, Snowflake had come up. Snowflake and BigQuery are the, the leaders I see now, mostly with their separation of the, the compute power and the storage. And so you can have more in there. It's really closer to how you're really using it and to what you're paying for, uh, which is really great. And then when the reverse ETL comes into play, it starts to be like, okay, great. These great reports are in Looker. 
we've got these cohort analysis. This user 32 is like, you know, about to churn or whatever it is, or doing really great. How can we take advantage of that in our marketing tools? Push an email, for example. Uh, we were using Urban Airship and Sailthrough. And that's when the reverse ETL things start to come into question. And so at the time we built something to synchronize that tool, synchronize from that warehouse into those tools. And, you know, and, it, and it's not the thing the engineers like to work on that much. <laughs> like we, we put together a minimal viable product, we got it going and yeah, we called it, we called it at the end of the day, like, Hey, marketing, you're welcome. But the thing is great marketing, especially great personalization and retention marketing. They have a new idea every week and they should always be testing and, and then seeing how those go. And in general, we couldn't keep up and didn't prioritize that. And so I do crazy things like approve a million dollars for our retention campaign on a Monday. And then a Thursday say, no, I can't get the last time somebody did cleaning into that, into, into your thing. And she's like, well, what about the goal? And I said, well, you know, good luck. I know I believe in you, but they needed data to hit the goal. And then we'd be confused why we didn't hit the goal. And it's because they didn't have the agility of testing that they, that they needed. And so I switched my tune and I'm now here to empower all those teams to be successful. So there's, there's a, when uh, Srini from preset connected us, it didn't surprise me at all that there is another open source forward reverse ETL or data engineering or whatever you want to call this space company because this problem is so big. It's such a diverse pain point and the adjacencies are enormous. And I kind of wonder why that, I mean, okay, here's my thesis on how we got to where we are and I'd love to hear yours. So we accidentally ended up in a world where the data warehouse is the center of the universe Everyone for some period of time was thinking it was going to be some sort of streaming system or like a Lambda architecture kind of thing. Instead, we just said, you know what? The simplest way to think about this is we throw everything in the data warehouse and we go from there. And then because of that, we had a ton of downstream infrastructure developments. Do you think that thesis is is reasonable? I think that's super reasonable. I think it's like the warehouse probably driven by uh, execs wanting good reports, if I had to guess, in, in short time period, <laughs> became the, the sun in, in this universe. And now things are revolving around it and things are going in and things are going out. I think the reverse ETL problem existed way before that happened, which I think was probably in the last, I don't know, five years. I think people have always wanted to make better use of their data and wanted needed ways to do that. It was just always because it's transforming their custom data model into something structured. So, you know, your crazy Postgres tables or whatever into, I don't know, Marketo or Zendesk. It always felt like it had to be some custom process, like, you know, to normalize your data into that. But as we've gotten better at putting all our data in one place and norm, you know, the normalization can be done through those queries and or it's just time to solve this problem. You know, us and others have decided that you know, it's, uh, it's finally time uh, to, to put that data to use in a more, I don't know what the right word is, a platform uh, to make that successful. And 
you're open your stuff is open source, right? You're doing open source? Okay. So I'm very suspect of the closed source providers, and that includes high touch when I which I invested in. I don't know why you would make this stuff closed source. It doesn't make any sense to me. If I had to guess, I don't think it's I mean, clearly, I'm I'm a proponent of open source and I think it, it brings tons of value in A, the ability to host it yourself, B, the clarity of of what's going on, C, this game is about having approximately infinite destinations to use your data. And I think it's an amazing, like long tail thing. We're talking to people in Brazil and Vietnam and integrating with the Brazilian and Vietnamese uh, MailChimps, like a closed source SaaS US-based service isn't going to get to that in years. Like Segment still hasn't gotten to those providers, right? And so like there's a ton of value in all that. I think if you asked High Touch, I don't think they'd say like closed source, it's ours, don't touch it. I think I think it's more about that they believe in the hosted model, which we're also experimenting with because not everybody can spin up their own instances to, you know, their DevOps things and they want to outsource that to to a SaaS provider. So I don't I don't think they would necessarily go to the map saying you can never look at their source code, but like I think they're probably just traditional SaaS vibes. Yeah, but it's like a bunch of kids. It's like kids. And I'm like, I'm telling them, you guys, what are you doing? Just make it open source. You'd lose nothing. You lose absolutely nothing. Nobody wants to stand up this thing and run it themselves. If they do, they're not your right customer anyway. So just open source it. Right. Yeah, I mean, now we're in philosophy land. I clearly believe that open source is good, but you know, maybe it slows down our velocity to do things out in the open. Maybe it doesn't. But, you know, there's probably a, a typical set of concerns. Like, why didn't we open source TaskRabbit? I guess it might be a random question. That's a valid question. Dude, email, email like, whatever, CEO at Ikea.com and ask him or her. <laughs> Do they have a CEO? They're like Icelandic or something? Swedish, man. You don't know that Ikea is Swedish? I'm sorry. It's very check, the famously the Swedish. I forgot about the, meat, the meatballs. Very right. famously Swedish, my friend. Yeah, so the... Uh, I mean, why isn't everything open source? And I mean, I'm sure there are. Which is a very, very valid question. It is a truly valid question. You know, auditability and all kinds of other things. I think that there's people believe probably rightly that there's some secret sauces in there and there's some, you know, maybe there's some dark tactics that they don't want fully exposed. Like that's super normal probably too. Maybe. Maybe. And uh, hey, listen, man, I just wrote a book about Facebook. So I think we could talk about that for a long time. Right. So, yeah, exactly. Anything could be open source for sure. And I think particularly when it comes for these network things like we're doing, uh, when it comes with your data, when it comes with the ability to self-host, which is super relevant to um, a lot of financial medical companies, for example, I think, you know, there's a bunch of benefits there. We're, we're doing a uh, conference Get a quick plug in uh, September twenty oh, eighth, no like a real life conference or like a virtual one. I mean, there will be real humans involved. We will be on videos. Uh, it will, will you have to wear like a hazmat suit, or can you can you actually be in a physical presence where there is air movement between people? 
Yeah, as long as it's your own thing and you're watching the video stream through our, our thing. It's virtual conference, open source Man, data stack. come on. Can we like have a restaurant event or something adjoining it? We're getting there. We're getting there, friend. But opensourcedatastack.com, us and several other open source companies are, are presenting on like what this full pipeline looks like. And we think there's a ton of value, um, the kind of things we've been saying on open source. And like, what what are you gonna? What's what kind? What are some of the talks of the conference? Like, what do you see as the most prominent problems and subjects in this ecosystem? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit earlier with all those companies, but more accurately, the domains, the emergent domains, and the emergent problems that true enterprises and startups are dealing with. Well, that's not what the talks are. The talks are sort of pulling out a like an example company and, and how you walk through this pipeline, building the modern data stack with, with the open source tools. And so we have Meltano and uh, Srini uh, from Preset and Dagster and Snowplow and us and, oh gosh, who am I forgetting? DBT involved in, in that. But I'm happy to talk about the problems too. I don't, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that like data quality and use is a differentiator in, in, in your business. Like, you know, we need to make good decisions. We need to hit people with the right messaging at the right time in the product, outside the product, uh, et cetera. And so like all of these, anything we're doing with the warehouse thesis, like is to make better decisions and to create better experiences. And, you know, that's different for every single, every single business. And we've seen a lot of people focusing on, and there's still, you know, there's like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs or something here on like, okay, first we need to be able to read the data we currently have, and then maybe we need to put it together in some place. And then we need to create business intelligence on top of that, right? And so people are walking up that chain. And I've, I've seen struggles for people creating their first warehouse and how am I going to get my Postgres data into that? to, okay, now all of this stuff is locked in third-party tools, events, and profile data, and all kinds of things. How do we combine all of those? And the current uh, best approach is the dump it all in the warehouse uh, sort of thing, if, if, if that fits your, your scale needs. Then it's like, okay, great. How are we going to ramp our teams up to make use of this data? How can we transform it into something that is useful? And then how can we teach them to use that so they can self-serve at TaskRabbit? Great day when our operations team like answered their own questions about who the best taskers were in San Francisco or, or whatever, instead of asking my data analyst, right? And then sort of at the pinnacle of all of that is how can we operationalize this intelligence that we've created to create those better experiences. DBT, why is DBT an N of one company? There are a multitude of, of ETL and reverse ETL providers. There's only one DBT. Why, what is DBT? Why is it so important in this ecosystem? I, I ask this question in pretty much every data engineering conversation I have. I, I need to understand why this company is so momentous. I like that. Momentous is like, a big deal and creating momentum or something. That's kind of, I kind of, I kind of like that. Anyway. I think it's more like uh, it, it is of the moment. Of the moment, exactly. Or, or definitive of the moment. Exactly. I think that, you know, like I said, we reached this time when like the warehouse is more accessible from a price and sort of 
zeitgeist uh, perspective. We've got lots of different ways to write into it, which is maybe why there's lots of different like Fivetran-ish things. Like there's, there's many different things you need to write into it. There's many different things you need to write out of it. That's the reverse ETL case. But just in that transforming layer, you know, I think, I think they have a win of extreme focus there, which is how a lot of people win at, at things. Uh, so I uh, respect that a lot. And this new level of accessibility to a, a broader set of engineers and even people that wouldn't have considered themselves engineers previously, uh, data analysts. And so if you can write SQL, you can now do this data engineering task that previously was only accessible to a quote unquote software engineer, data engineer writing Python code, and it all seems super fragile. They've hardened and made accessible a pattern that made this notion of the analytics engineer or essentially data analysts able to do the skills that they could, you know, accomplish a goal they couldn't before. You buy that? Uh, Is that what the other people said? What they you know, said? You know, you know what I think. You know what I think. Here's the best, to the best of my knowledge. It's kind of like you can't have Kubernetes without YAML, right? And you can't have a data engineering ecosystem without DBT. That's certainly what they want you to think, and, and like I, I think it's the current best way to do it for sure. Hmm. Can you make a better one? I mean, theoretically, but they've got. They've been doing this for a long time. Uh, all overnight successes are, are five years in the making. Oh, I mean, the DBT story is so phenomenal. I love that story. You know, it's it's kind, it's actually kind of similar to the Great Expectations story. I don't know how much of a believer you are in the Great Expectations uh, data testing kind of thing, but uh, it's sort of the same story, right? We start as kind of like a consulting firm, and then we have these emergent breakages of data engineering and we accidentally start a company. It's it's kind of a beautiful product market fit discovery. Exactly. So like, it's unclear if I could make a better one and it's probably not worth the time. So, because focus... <laughs> well, no, no. You'll probably find something else in an, as an emergent property of the brokenness of the space. I'm sure you'll find something else. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, that... The, I think the whole... These whole ecosystems go through like this sine curve or something of like best of breed solutions, like piece together into the perfect thing for you. And then some really big platform. And so I think if something is going to displace the current situation, it's all moving so fast, which is best of breed solutions sort of around that data warehouse. It's going to be some platform that has, that makes bringing all of that together. Now, now, obviously, <laughs> we believe we're a best-of-breed solution uh, on that, and we're not seeking to be that full platform. But, you know, a few years down the road, the curve might, might go the other way, and some combo warehouse transform in-and-out kind of thing might win because it's, you know, the integration, essentially. So uh, I was looking at your Crunchbase and HackVC is one of your investors, right? Ed Roman? I have known Ed Roman since I was like 13 years old. <laughs> and maybe you're old and that's been a while because you called some people that are 
you know, not terribly young kids earlier. So <laughs> I'm 33. I'm 33, but I was definitely playing Magic 20 years ago. So I met Ed Roman playing Magic. Very good. He was one of the faction. He was part of one of the factions of the Austin, Texas Magic player diaspora, you might say. <laughs> diaspora. <laughs> I like that concept. The Are you a Magic player? You ever play Magic the Gathering? No, not not Magic. I have a son. He's into uh, Dungeons and Dragon. Uh, oh wow! And the a little bit drug. of Pokemon. Generally familiar with these things. I miss that level. Like, there's all kinds of dorks in the world. I wasn't, uh, you know, in that uh, group. Hey, man, magic is a sport. And magic is a sport. It has nothing to do with dorkery. I mean, you know, geeks. Geeks are people that are excited about you, things. You know, you know what's funny? You know what's funny? I, so, like, all the guys, all the guys, all the jocks that used to, like, beat me up and make fun of me for magic, once everything shifted to poker in high school and I started smashing them and taking their money and making more money than all of them make even today in high school, you know, they still didn't respect me. It was kind of funny. Like, well, you know, you got to... You pick your uh, vibe of what you respect, and I guess it takes a lot of data, and maybe never. It's hard to change people, my friend. It's hard to change people. I agree, and but even if you don't change them, you can still take their money at the poker table. That's what I like about it. I think that's the ideal situation if you really want to get into it. Like pretty much, if they're not learning, like yeah, that's what you want as a as on the other side of the table. So let me ask you, as somebody who has pitched several businesses to Ed Roman unsuccessfully. How do you convince that guy to invest in your company? Oh. By the way, Ed Roman, one of the best investors in the Valley when it comes to infrastructure, is my belief. And fairly under the radar for how good he is. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, as seen by this magic diaspora situation, uh, super connected and super insightful and in helping us out uh, just recently, in fact. So I guess I don't know the secret, right, uh, per se, because I didn't like over-target him specifically in my pitch. Like maybe you just said he's one of the best infrastructure investors. So like, you know, it's good to have the infrastructure. I don't know if that's what you pitched or not. <laughs> I was actually pitching him on a... Magic the Gathering? Well, a gaming company. Yeah, so I'm building a gaming company that's that's like an improvement on Magic the Gathering. And that's what I pitched him on. And uh, it was a it was a not right now kind of response. Yeah. He wishes you the best of luck. He's rooting he for you the from the sidelines. He's rooting for you for the sidelines. He looks forward to seeing lines, not dots. <laughs> that's good. I like that. I haven't Have heard you heard that one, one before? I haven't heard Have the heard dot the, one. The, the lines, not dots? I haven't heard lines. We invest in lines, not dots. Okay. Well, it only takes two dots to make a line, my friend. <laughs> that's true. Uh, like so maybe, technic maybe technically technically we have dots we have a dot at the beginning of our conversation we have a dot halfway through the conversation where you're telling me no don't we have a line yeah right right to the hard no uh but he'll yeah. vcs are in the business of optionality so it's it's a it's a diagonal line right down to the hard no but it it makes one of those little like uh high oh my gosh i've lost my math terms it never quite hits the hard no is there the slope no the no, good. The y-intercept. Well, no, it doesn't y-intercept. It curves, you know, like infinitely approaching. Hyperbole? Mm. No. Hypotenuse? No. Damn it. This is embarrassing. So anyway, my theory on this whole... Like, anyway, it wasn't an infrastructure company, so I didn't say yes. But he likes open source, and he likes infrastructure. We had a strong team that has worked together before. He likes data. I don't know. 
I think that, that's my advice on it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, speaking honestly, if you can invest in the amount of deals that Ed Roman invests in, you probably pass on the crazy podcaster guy pitching you a gaming company. But at the same time, this whole optionality strategy that they run, like, so Sequoia tried to run this on me, Andreessen tried to run this on me, and I told them, you will never be able to invest in this company ever again. Because you you have to deprive them of the optionality. Otherwise, they're just going to exploit you constantly. It's it's very frustrating. That, you know that you, I did like three pitch meetings with Andreessen, and then at the end they told me, "Sorry, we're going to wait to see more traction." I said, "I'm sorry. You will not have another chance to invest in this if you don't invest now." And that's what you have to do. How'd it go? I didn't get a response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, come on, I gave you like three hours of my time, several long-winded emails, and you can't even like have a follow-up acknowledgement. Like, how savage do you need to be? Asymptote. I did some Googling. Asymptote, that's, right. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, so we, we brought on uh, Fuel and ENIAC and Ed and, and a few others. Who's ENIAC? Who does ENIAC? That's ENIAC. a great name for a venture firm. Yeah, I've, I was told once that I, someone corrected me uh, that I was supposed to say it ENIAC too, but I don't know. Either way, they're out of New York, four partners, all of which went to Penn was where the ENIAC system was. And uh, so they took that as, as inspiration, working with a guy named Hadley there, super well-connected, super bright bunch, super founder, supportive. Sure. What's your favorite like giant vacuum tube era computer system is it eniac univac i just like i don't even know anything about them i just like them because they have uh, names that are entirely in capital letters yes exactly acronyms i guess i'm i don't i don't uh, i don't think i've i've thought of this before but i think the this notion of like all of the computing power like to put someone on the moon is super interesting to me. Like the, the rooms th that they had and all of that to calculate those, those curves and whatnot. I think that's su super interesting. I'm from Houston originally. So I got to, Oh, you're from Houston. I'm from Austin. Awesome. I lived in Austin. So I worked for oh. IBM on, uh, oh, cool. on burn it. Uh, oh man. Off, over there. So, so I worked at, uh, I guess our, our locality didn't overlap in this sense, but I worked in um, their eBay. eBay had an office like right next to IBM. In wait, you're talking about like up north, right? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I don't know between the Mopac and 35 metric, approximately. Up north, and it's up no north Austin, like That's right. far north enough that you kind of dodge some of the worst traffic. That's right. Yeah, I IBM made that site a million years ago, and then like you know eBay and others probably, you know, kind of like, just like a... A joinders. Was it like Intel opened up right next to Fairchild or, or whatever, you know, in the, in the Valley, that kind of idea. <laughs> yeah, that kind of vibe. That's exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the kind of... Yeah, IBM opens a random office in North Austin. eBay opens a random office right next to it. That's exactly the same vibe. Exactly. We'll get back to ETL in a sec, but or uh, data engineering. But what were you doing at IBM at the time? And what year was that? It was like right after college? Yeah, that was, uh, I did several internships in college. You know, any college age people listening, I highly recommend uh, doing those internships. I did three internships while in college, even co-oping is what we called it. I went to Clemson 
Some of those were during spring or fall semesters, uh, sort of on and off. That was my last one. And I was in the, this program IBM had, I think still had, which is called the Extreme Blue Program. So I was working with Tivoli, which IBM had bought, which was kind of like a, I don't know what you want to call it, like a deployment management, many systems kind of uh, thing. Maybe they'd be using Kubernetes or, or something to get all of these machines right uh, these days. Yeah, so I was there for six months and then took, Extreme Blue is really a recruiting program. They don't really care what I did for Tivoli. They then recruited me into working for IBM, uh, which I did in Boston for uh, several years. Gotcha. Anyway, so let's go back to, I just don't even want to think about my time working in North Austin ever again. I did, dude, I drove every day, 30 minutes up, 30 minutes down, just listening to podcasts, searching for an answer that would allow me to escape that grind. There it is. Did you find it? I think so. There you go. I was listening to Software Engineering Radio at the time. That was the, that's the podcast that that was the predit that was, you know, I, my, was my training ground. Basically I would listen to that podcast. And then eventually I heard they were looking for volunteer podcasters. And I said, Oh, well, okay, I'll try that. And you know, 12 years later or whatever, here we are. But I digress. Do you have like 1600 episodes at this point? So, okay. All these integrations, Salesforce integration, MySQL integration, Postgres integration, Redshift integration, intercom integration, MailChimp integration, Salesforce, I assume, you have to have this end by end data transfer issue, schema transformations. The first time I encountered the depth of this problem was when I talked to George at Fivetran maybe two and a half years ago. Ever since then, I've just heard more and more about it. How do you solve this as an engineering problem where you have these divergent schemas, you have to unify the schemas? and you have to build good data transfer between them, this is like a massive problem. How do you approach it? It's interesting because I think Fivetran has it easier than we do. I think, I think that's every company ever. Grass is always greener kind of thing. But they're, they're writing from a known situation generally. They're using APIs from Salesforce and writing into a fairly small set of destinations, Snowflake, et cetera. I think the interesting thing about reverse ETL as opposed to the ELT approach writing into the warehouse, the interesting thing about reverse ETL is that there's also this notion of the customer's data model, right? That is somewhat separate from all those other things. I happen to think that's a good reason to be like, the more it's about your specific data model, the more that the open source tooling makes sense. I think that's why DBT is open source, um, for example, to express that data model in that open source framework. Um, and we're doing the same thing. And so our approach is sort of a declarative approach in that way, which is that you express your the data that's important to you. We then have, if it was really end by end, you'd be screwed, obviously, right? And so you query those sources, MySQL, Postgres, Snowflake, BigQuery, et cetera, then you have your data in a fairly normalized form. You know, here's the customer and their, you know, a bunch of integers and strings and, and floats and whatnot. And then you make a abstraction API to all those destinations and say, here, please make this so in, in MailChimp. And then it's all about unit tests 
and API rate limiting <laughs> learnings and all these other things that you have to deal with, especially on the on the way out. Okay, what is the hardest engineering problem you've had to solve so far? The hardest engineering problem, single problem, I think is like, I don't know, sync in general, the, the sync and synchronizing with your source and just general efficiency throughout the system. I mean, it's something we were always iterating on and, and, and trying to get right. You want to can't miss anything like that's like SLA number one, but at the same time, want to be as uh, efficient as possible, both with data, with querying, and especially on the way out with various rate limiting and things like that. So just figuring out the right way to be efficient there. And go to market. What about go to market? Is it easy to convince people to use Grouperoo or do you have to sort of win them over from the other market participants? I think that an interesting thing we're seeing is where people are on that, maybe on that pyramid that I talked about earlier. Like it depends where you are in your data journey. If you're still struggling to get everything in your warehouse and or querying or something like that, then I get some glazed eyes like wait like you're talking about making use of this data like we can't even reliably pull it together that kind of thing but if you're in the spot where essentially the engineering team or the data team the data engineering team has it on their plates to integrate with these things and make use of this data you know we take a problem that's six weeks and make it 15 minutes and we set you up with an architecture for the future and which every engineer i've ever met likes doing things now and they they like predicting that they're going to thank their past selves right like oh smart move like this is this this migration from mailchimp to iterable is super easy you know it's one thing we make super easy for example thank you past self or oh you want to integrate one more thing like okay. super easy like ah oh, thanks pay it's like a ponzi scheme of, of software engineering architectural decisions they like it until it all falls apart, which it does sometimes. But when you do, when you make the right choice, uh, you you feel really good about it. So you like to set yourself up for that. So in those cases, we when when they're ready to go, we see that it's pretty easy. It seems to me that the economics of this business are so insanely good. You basically have the economics of an API company. It's slightly worse than than a raw API company because you have a lot of data to handle. So, but maybe you can price that appropriately. How are the economics? Well, the economics of selling license for self-hosting are insanely good. First of all, hmm. that's a that's a very interesting angle. Wait, is that what you, that was? That's what you do? I thought people can just like stand up open source stuff themselves. They need a license. There's an enterprise edition that you can self-host. So, like, Got in it. terms of economics, like that's the most amazing one for sure seeing as how, you know, there's no hosting uh, to do and, and things like that. For the, the SaaS hosting that we're doing, I think it's yet to be seen what the right data model is, frankly. Right now out there, we see people charging based on the number of connections. I've seen people charging based on the, you know, basically the number of data movements, um, runs of, of the thing based on the number of rows that are being transferred. 
I'm very interested to find the right way that doesn't, I think often disincentivize the right behaviors and customer success with your pricing if you if you don't do it just right. And so for example, vaguely the same picture as us, but accomplished in a very different way is segment, which is like, you know, events and then they chain those and they charge per event, which makes a lot of sense because that's where their variable costs are. But then you have all these like not so great conversations every six weeks internally when it gets too expensive. Are we really using this data? Like, is this, should this really be something that we're sending and things like that? And so charging on the number of connections, we want it to be able to do a number of connections and charging on the data that you're sending through it, again, goes with our fixed costs, but we don't want to limit our success. And so like, to some degree, I think the, the equation on those economics are, are still out and we have to iterate on, on what the right model is. Right now we have a flat fee, <laughs> you know, 150 bucks uh, and, you know, whatever it is while we're in learning and, and seed funded mode. For self-hosted, are you using replicated? We are not, although it's very interesting. You, we have Docker things that you can do, or you can just spin up the, an instance uh, like you would any other Node project or Node-based. Did, did you look at replicated? Are you thinking about that at all? I've heard about it a few times, and I went to their, their site. We're not seeing that. I don't know. What, what do you think the benefit would be for us, I guess? You know, Replicate is interesting. You know, a full disclosure, they've been a sponsor of, the, of, of us in the past, but I'll give you my honest perspective or the extent to which I can be honest about this. To me, the problem that they're solving seems almost impossible. Basically, like, we're going to be your package manager for a distributed system. Eh, maybe. Can you really do that? Maybe. You know, they do have some amazing logos, which is very impressive, but I don't know how the logos are actually using their product. So, you know, if I knew more about that, then maybe, I mean, for example, README. README, I know, uses them, and README is a very happy participant in their ecosystem. So, and I like README a lot. README is like a perfect example because README is fairly simple. We're hosted README software. That's what we do. It needs to be a distributed system, so you do need a distributed systems package management system, but it's ultimately not very complicated. README is like a very, very nice blogging system, basically. Uh, or CRUD system. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful application, but it's not super complicated. It's not as, there's not as many, there's not as many opportunities for timeouts and external dependencies and stuff as there is in, in what you're building. So, you know, when I think about, you know, trusting some third-party vendor to be the arbiter of whether or not my software works, I don't know if I'm trusting anybody else other than me and my Docker containers for vending my software. So I, you know, I probably would do what you're doing. I wouldn't enjoy it, but I would do what you're doing. <laughs> I'm not saying it's great. For well, sure. actually, you, but you can basically use um, Kubernetes operators, right? That's kind of does what you need to do, right? Or do you even need that? Yeah, we've seen, we've seen like, what are some of these words? Helm, we've seen some Helm stuff. Mm -hmm. We've seen some Ansible stuff, you know, just various ways to <laughs> cats. My cats are fighting. I didn't want to go and like, I didn't, I need to put one of them in the room, but I, you know, I, I can wait. So I just threw a box. I threw a box at one of them. <laughs> I threw a box between them. I don't throw boxes at my animals, just between them. That's good. That's important. You probably do the same with your kids. It's a single tenant architecture between the cats. <laughs> Something like that. 
maybe this is not a question you can answer diplomatically, but what is the hardest thing to integrate with? What is it Salesforce just by virtue of the complexity of the schema? Well, the schema is kind of complicated in Salesforce because things like transition between these objects, that's kind of like people generally have like a lead and then they turn it into a contact, which somehow makes an opportunity. Like there's all kinds of things going on there. And so, you know, we have a, it can do an integration that's like helps you transition those, which is like much more advanced than like, it's actually easy to integrate with Salesforce because it's basically a database. So there's two, there's two answers to Salesforce specifically. Like one, it's one of the easier ones because they don't have any major, they have, like you can ask it its types and you can do all kinds of things and write into it. But then when we zoom out and try to solve the full issue, then we talk about a, kind of a custom process of how they want to migrate between these objects. And then it gets a little weird. It's almost like a DBT <laughs> transformation kind of ish problem, but in Salesforce. So that's kind of weird. The... I did a blog post the other day of like, who has the best rate limits? I kind of compared some that was kind of interesting. And it's very interesting. Basically, the more enterprisey you are, the worst rate limits you have, basically highly encouraging people to do batching. And then the more consumer-ish or startup-ish you are, the more higher rate limits you have, and, they, and you don't even have these batch APIs. So it's kind of pros and cons there. The integration with intercom was probably the hardest to sort of the most exhausting to build that we built so far, mainly because we have a full test suite and all this other stuff to make sure that we're doing all these things right. They've got a lag between when you put it in there and then when you can read it back out. So like maybe they're indexing it in Elasticsearch or something. I don't know, like some sort of back, you, you write it, then you read, it's not there. And then like some indeterminate amount of time after that, it is there. And so our test suite, like to make sure that we get it right, like waits five minutes after every read or something. And it takes like all night to run, which is very, which very, which in general was very frustrating. Now we record that basically anytime we need to make changes to an intercom, it's like an overnight process, which is kind of sad. All right. Well, I, I'm, Running up on time, but we could definitely do another show at some point in the future. This is really interesting. Last closing discussion. Actually, I was going to ask you first, what's the deal with the uh, paintings in the background? Pretty cool paintings. Yeah, I'm in my literal Silicon Valley garage right now. And there's like these panelings from whenever this house was built, 1930s. And I got feedback that it looked like I was in a shipping container. And so I dug these paintings. My mom moved and gave me this one, like this one we had up in our living room a long time ago. And I just, you know, kind of kind of put some trees up. Uh-huh. Thought it would help. Uh, okay, well, good answer. So um, final real question. If you were not building Grouperoo, what would you be building right now? I had a long list of things, you know, as I was thinking about what was next uh, for me and all based on the the pain I experienced, you know, and things I thought were still unsolved. At the top of that list under group group is something that turned out to look a lot like retool. I think the I think I think what they're working on is a super mm. interesting uh, mm. idea. Just maybe it's a trend you're seeing, but like ways to do things that engineering's aren't that excited about, but add a lot of value to the business. Admin tooling was something I was super passionate about <laughs> making more efficient uh, and data movement as well. 
So that's super interesting. So the whole low-code space, if I had to name the two most interesting areas in software engineering, I might say, depending on the day, data engineering and low-code. And I actually, I'm going to ask you the real final question. What do you think of these low-code data engineering platforms? I think I am a low-code data engineering platform. Yeah, I guess you are, kind of. But not not like, uh, so I interviewed one called Prophecy.io. There's one um, that Matrix invested in. I interviewed. There's a number of these of these ones. <laughs> There's a number of these ones. So I don't see your platform like drawing boxes and arrows between a bunch of stuff, right? Are you do- sure? It's not a well. I mean, to some degree, I was going to say it's not like a generic wiring things up, but I guess to some degree it is. Like you're mapping, you're defining something in a box, and then ma- it's got one arrow. <laughs> big arrow, mapping that to this other thing. In general, I'm bullish on low code in particular. I I find something we've invested a lot in is the software engineering workflow being brought to the data, into this data space. Uh, And so when you, a way to do group row is to define all of these things in code, in Git, in JSON, basically. and then that allows you to review them and test them and have staging environments and all of that other stuff, which is a progression in general the data space is doing. And so that's what I call low code that still enables that workflow, which I think is super, super valuable. Okay, real, real final, final question. Could you do open source Webflow or open source data engineer or open, sorry, open source uh, low code, whatever, open source bubble, open source Webflow? Open source retool, and why wouldn't you? Or why wouldn't retool be open source? I've seen an open source retool recently, actually, on Hacker really? News. Didn't Ooh. stick with me, but I definitely saw one or two, maybe even. My mind's a little attuned to that space as I was I thinking mean, again, a lot about it before. Again, this is this is the same thing. Why on earth, if you're an integrations company, why on earth would you be closed source? It's like, are you digging your own grave? What are you doing? I think it's interesting that Retool put out like some sort of GitHub self-hosted something or another recently. I find that very it's interesting. Like, come They're on. trying to solve that go-to-market privacy thing, which is pretty interesting. But I think in the fullness of time, like there weren't even open source databases, whatever, 20, 30 years ago, right? And now yeah, they are. But now, now it's, it's 2021. Can we like fast forward to the end of the movie yet? You know, you gotta you gotta go through that hero's journey, my friend. You know, you I think in the fullness still? of time, we'll see all these things. We'll see it. We'll see all right. it all. Well, on that note, pleasure talking to you. You want to plug the conference one more time? What's the conference? Yep, Open Source Data Stack Conference, September twenty eighth to thirtieth. OpenSourceDataStack.com. The website is open source. You'll like that. There you go. <laughs> Groundbreaking. Well, um, Brian, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, nice, nice to talk to you.